Hello and welcome to Dystopian Deep Dives with your host, Natalie Donna. What follows is a conversation about Margaret Atwood's Orcs and Crake, a book that is eerily prescient. We discuss the book. This is with a special guest, and I hope you do enjoy it. Without further ado, here's the episode. Okay. Uh, I have a friend of mine uh, here to talk about Margaret Atwood's Orcs and Crake. Uh, we find it to be a very eerie book that has a lot of sort of, what would you say, like, is it predictive programming? What do you think about this book? Right. Well, it, it is, it's tough to say. Um, I think it's predictive programming, a script, um, some hauntingly analogous sort of like plans and unfoldments of plans as what's happening but again this book was written over a decade ago and yet it yeah, seems 2003, to be I think right yeah and it's interesting because I've uh, even in speaking with some people lately it seems like there was sort of like a a flowering of both fiction and think tanks and sort of biotech press releases and things around 2000 and the early 2000s that really kind of it was like a volcanic period for, you know, kind of like sexy new ideas of what they could do with their, you know, newfangled hubris and dreams of godlike power through bioengineering. And so this was sort of written during that period. But really, I feel like the target sort of era for all of that seems to be now. Right. So because probably my audience and I've only read uh, 30 pages of this book, you know, full disclosure. Um, let's really quickly go over what the plot is of this book. Sure. Um, and this book is incredible. Everyone should read it. Um, I really can't, you know, plug it enough. And it's not like, if, if, if for no other reason than it's like, you know, if, you, if you're going to go see a play, it helps to have the playbill in case you, you know, stop paying attention or in our case, want to live because of all the things that are happening. Um, We're probably going to reveal a lot of elements. So if you want to stop this podcast right now and go ahead and read the book and come back, I don't blame you, but we're going to get into it. So, so here's like a summary and I'm just going to read the parts that are, because it is, it, the narrative is sort of told in like flashback, flash forward fashion. So it's, you have this post-apocalyptic narrator named Snowman, who's essentially, the book opens and he's talking to these um, sort of like uh, Mad Max era, like bioengineered paradise people. They're like blue and orange and red and whatever all these different colors and they're naked and they're they they're they're like humans but also like wild animals in that they don't need anything to survive in nature and this is a post-apocalyptic future so it's a good bit harsher than our future so it opens with him talking to them and, and referring to them as the children of crake um and they're it the illust it illustrates that they're very obviously different from him because he's like you know, traumatized and covered in scabs and just like, he's not doing too hot. So essentially he goes, starts telling his life story um, from the beginning. And it, I, if I had to, I would say the, the, the lifetime of this narrator 
begins probably around the 2000s, if you had to superimpose it on our world, right? Mm. So um, basically, his name is Jimmy in the in his childhood, you know, his actual name is Jim, Jimmy. And so his parents um, worked at this place called Organ Inc. Farms, which is essentially a biotech company, but it's not just a company, it's actually a compound mm-hmm. um, where they are, you know, doing what biotech companies do. But this part, I would say, is very much flash forwarded, maybe not so much, but at least the part where they have like a compound with private security. You know what I mean? Um I don't know that we're quite there yet. Maybe we are. And so what this company is doing, they have a few kind of products in the pipeline, but their main sort of thing is they have these um, these bioengineered pigs called pigoons, which are essentially transgenic. This is, I'm taking a direct pull from the book, transgenic mm-hmm. knockout pigs that they use to grow human organs that right. you know won't won't be rejected and you know it's like very i mean it's very biblical but um the interesting thing is this just happened in real life i'm going to sort of break the fourth wall here yeah didn't, um, didn't that recently we were able to do things like this we're basically creating like chimeras exactly and and technically we've been creating chimeras since the beginning of the the sort of biotech era you know even mm-hmm. When I was, you know, spoiler alert, I was in school for biology some years ago. And I remember even in my biology textbook very early on, you know, you had illustrations of like the glow in the dark bunny or the glow in the dark tobacco plant where they would take the gene that codes for a bioluminescent protein and insert it into a totally different, you know, they could take the gene from, I don't know, like algae or a firefly and put it into a creature that's a totally different, like, species you know totally different class of organism like a higher organism so and that that's sort of like the real world echo of a lot of this stuff and so on this organic farms they are breeding these pigs and they make it very clear that um it's it's these corp these corporations or these biotech companies are sort of like the new nation states they're very concerned with like you know scientific and proprietary espionage and, um, you know, if, if they were to lose a pig to a rival company, that would be a disaster. But anyway. What, you know, sort of going forward that they're trying to do with sort of, I mean, quote unquote, like smart cities or these sorts of um, intentional cities that uh, our friend has looked into. Right. These, these kinds of places where it's like this is, you know, uh, for lack of a better example, like this is pepsi town right this is pepsi cola town and it's all centered around this corporate um entity so it, it's it when i was reading it it all just sort of felt so uh current exactly and i, and I flipped the pages back and i was like when did when was this printed because i i hadn't heard of this book before um and yeah it's like 2003 like 2004 something like this and I was kind of blown away because it seems like maybe Margaret Atwood just did a lot of research and and had some ideas on how to you know project with it or you know to just be a little conspiratorial like had some kind of insider knowledge it's a very creepy prescient book 
that's exactly the word I was going to use is it, it would have been prescient prior to, you know, 2020. And now it's just creepy. But if I may, I would like to read, um, and I was telling you about this earlier, I'd like to read um, just a, a brief excerpt from this article um, on Cision, no, no, Newswire Canada, whatever it is. Um, so this is an article from January 27th, 2010. Um, Toronto, January 27th. McClelland and Stewart is pleased to announce that beloved Canadian author Margaret Atwood has received the World Economic Forum's Crystal Award 2010 in Davos, Switzerland. The Crystal Award has been presented as part of the World Economic Forum Annual Meeting 2010. Improve the state of the world, colon. Rethink, redesign, rebuild, and honors artists who have used their art to improve the state of the world. Atwood said, quote, I'm very honored to have been given the Crystal Award this year. The future of the planet will depend on a great deal of human creativity, and it is heartening to see an organization focused on economies recognizing the contributions made by artistic creators and thinkers. After all, language, music, and visual art are part of the human heritage that is much older than economies as we know them today. They are who we are, while money is a neutral tool that enables us to do what we imagine. Oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, the There's Crystal Award so was introduced. There's so much to it. Yeah, yeah. There. yeah, there is. I'm, I'm loading, I'm like loading our, our vault, you know what I mean? And then we can spill it out and just dive in. So I want to, if I may, I'm just going to read just a wee bit more of this and then finish the, the synopsis and then we can just go in. How does that sound? Yeah, okay. of course. Um, the Crystal Award was introduced in 1995 to honor personalities who are highly regarded as both cultural leaders and just pay attention to global citizens. They love these, these buzzwords. They don't love they? the global citizen. Global citizen, rethink, redesign, rebuild. They Re-imagine. love it. Reimagine. Uh, Reimagine is a big one. Um, committed to improving the state of the world. The award, a Swiss, Swiss mountain crystal, pays tribute to the decisive role that culture and arts play in the creation of global understanding and peace and is presented at the meet. So this is presented in Davos. Yeah, and the Swiss I mean, connection too. Yeah. <laughs> So everything's there wow and the and and ironically the, the all of the books that they mention i don't know if she writes anything other than dystopian fiction but all of the books that they mention so it says her internationally best-selling fiction includes the year of the flood which is the sequel to oryx and Crake, which i've also read which is good but like not as much of a it's more of a it's just a sequel Oryx and Crake, The Blind Assassin, Alias Grace, and Handmaid's Tale. Now, I haven't read The Blind Assassin or Alias Grace. My mother loves The Blind Assassin, though. She really likes it. But three of those books are literally like straight up dystopian fiction. You know, I mean, I feel like a lot of people are familiar with the concepts put forward in The Handmaid's Tale, um, if only in passing. So, yeah. So, I mean, we have an artist here who, you know, or an author, I should say, who yeah just an eerily well-researched book you know she had you know very sort of beautiful speech she hit all of the you know the 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 bullet points for you know whatever visionary author and and and... but what does the world economic forum how is orcs and crake making things better what is that's a great question well yeah exactly i mean revelation of the method i guess (laughs) It's just a really strange book, basically about a potential future it, that is, you know, apocalyptic. I don't, it's, I mean, is 
a bleak future what the world economic forum is is looking towards like what right well i think that i think that a future in which they are able to sort of troll the masses and essentially put out whether through you know i feel like it's a chicken or the egg situation which came first you know the idea for the book or or the you know what i mean did she start researching things in the real world and just get freaked out and maybe a little bit turned on and then decide to write a book about it or did she you know start writing a book and then said oh this is a great concept but i really want to make sure my research is sort of really solid and then went in and you know what I mean it's it's interesting and I think that's a key point but you know what I'm just going to read this uh, summary because it's in front of me mm-hmm. um, I think that'll be easier um, Oryx and Crake opens with a man named Snowman waking up in a tree some kind of catastrophic event has taken place but the reader does not yet know what the event was or what caused the event it appears that Snowman may be the sole survivor of the event aside from a group of childlike people he refers to as the children of Crake who walk around naked and clearly have a unique genetic composition. The post-apocalyptic world represents the novel's present time, and each chapter of the book moves back and forth between Snowman's present experiences and his memories of his pre-apocalypse life, when he went by the name Jimmy. These separate but connected narrative threads weave together as the book moves along. In the present time narrative, Snowman watches over the children of Crake or the Crakers, to whom he feels a sense of responsibility. Snowman spins fictional stories about individuals named Crake and Oryx, whom the Crakers understand as kind of gods. Whereas Crake watches over the Crakers, or is this part is not that important. Um, blah, blah, blah. Okay, the, the, the Crakers appear well adapted to the post-apocalyptic environment. Snowman struggles to keep himself fed and hydrated. He knows where he can find more much-needed supplies, but the location is far away, and he's never left the Crakers for more than a day. Nevertheless, he decides to make a dangerous journey. After informing the Quakers, he sets off for the Paradise facility in the Rejuvenescence compound where he once worked alongside Crake. So I'm just going to read like the part about their life before the apocalypse because I feel like this is pretty clear. The narrative begins in Jimmy's boyhood. His parents worked at a company called Organ Inc. Farms, which researched ways to grow human organs cheaply and effectively. Jimmy's mother grew increasingly disgusted by the company's work, which caused friction with her husband. She suffered a long period of depression, and soon after her husband got a high-status new job, she ran away, abandoning Jimmy. Uh, Aside, this is me including something, you later find out that she essentially became what these people would consider a terrorist and, like, leaked their information. But what we we would consider an activist slash independent journalist because she blew the lid on a lot of the stuff that they were doing. Jimmy suffered greatly after his mother's disappearance. However, he survived through a blossoming friendship with a new student at Healthwiser High named Crake, with whom he spent a lot of time watching graphic videos of sex and violence on the internet. Whereas Jimmy lacked an aptitude for math and science, Crake proved himself gifted in both disciplines. After they graduated, Crake went off to the prestigious Watson Crick Institute, where he majored in bioengineering. Meanwhile, Jimmy attended a lower tier school specializing in the arts and humanities. There, he majored in a program called Problematics, which prepared him for a career in advertising. After graduating, Jimmy started working for a company called A New You, where he applied his dissertation on 20th century self-help manuals to marketing campaigns for self-improvement products. Um, Okay, so it says, uh, Craig graduated early and soon began to lead his own special projects. Although Jimmy and he kept uh, kept in touch and occasionally visited each other, their communications dwindled as the years progressed. Um... That's interesting. So they're even elevating the STEM. 
oh yeah oh yeah versus the humanities person a theme that we see going on currently very much so well i think because it's you know just just as education in the form that we have inherited it was created by corporations to groom sort of obedient you know functionaries i think the new model is very much obedient functionaries that can be hired by biotech and they need to yeah they need people to uphold the systems that are already in place that's basically all that education is for at this point um critical thinking that kind of thing the humanities because it's not a humane world i don't think that exactly they create so if people actually read uh you know just literature or anything like that fiction whatever i mean i always say fiction is sort of the fiction is for answering questions that we can't answer right um so everything's wrapped up neatly into a, a fictional book right we can end it we can end the story we can whatever um and reality is not as neat as that right it's not as tidy um but fiction's very important for exploring these ideas um and margaret knows this <laughs> obviously has built an entire career out of fictional writing that is based um in some some sense of reality but i i always find that very interesting where we're trying to sort of rid ourselves of these nebulous sorts of humanities kinds of uh pathways and it's all just oh we better teach the kids stem that's the future you know well it's i i find it i agree with you 100 percent. and i just wanted to add that it's really a, a tragic but but beautiful metaphor for how we first of all yeah we don't value those sort of humanistic things anymore and second of all if you think about like you know engineering this very sick dependent desperate world you know this sort of like despondent situation where people will increasingly rely on these companies for absolutely everything even more so than they already do mm. the, the you know the the math and science are a very sort of clinical if you're purely, you know, sort of that way, that's a very clinical sort of like data point way of looking at reality. Whereas things like fiction, you know, whatever prose, po um, comedy, really, I would say fiction and comedy are sort of like the medicine, because that's how you reach people, you know, I mean, just that's the same how you sort of get to a, some kind of truth, I think. Well, because you're creating this fictional, again, whether it's comedy or fiction, I would say fiction, maybe even more than comedy, because we live in an unfortunately overly politically correct yeah. uh, paradigm where people are upset by any good comedy, you know, it's good because it starts to upset people. But, um, but with fiction, it's like, you know, you can't disagree with fiction. If, if I just started walking up to someone, you know, and saying, don't you know that, that, you know, this is, this is false and they want you to believe this and they want you to think this virus is doing this, but really, you know, it's like the barriers go up so rapidly and the person shuts down because, they, you know, they, they already have stock in, in something. They have stock in the current paradigm, you know, chances are. And so they're going to shut down and stop listening. Whereas if you come in with fiction, it's like, well, this is, a, this is something that someone dreamed up. So you can't disagree with it. And so it kind of draws people in. Similar with comedy, because people can't really tell what 
a comedian is doing at first in comedy. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, you know, you have the... Yeah, if the joke is good, for sure. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. And so that's, that's the best kind is when people take it seriously and then you just, you know, the shattering sort of occurs. But yeah, I, I, really, I really do feel that way. All right, let me get through the part of this that I really want to hit so that I can yeah, reference the things that I'd like to reference. Um, so I'm just going to dive into some, some sort of specifics. And then I, I tried to pull up a few analogs. And there are some things that aren't mentioned in this synopsis either. So I'm going to bring that in. So anyway, um, uh, occasionally during his years at a new U, employees of an agency called the Corpse of Corpse, which is like the private security that all these like, you know, huge corporations hire, um, came to Jimmy's apartment to interrogate him about his mother's whereabouts. But Jimmy had long since lost contact with her. In his fifth year to New You, the agents came again and showed Jimmy a mother a video of his mother's execution. The news of his mother's death sent Jimmy into a profound depression, which only came to an end when Craig showed up at his apartment and asked Jimmy to come work with him at Rejuvenescence, which is where Craig was working. Jimmy accepted the job, which involved running an ad campaign for a new pill called Bliss Plus that Craig had designed to improve users' libido while simultaneously and secretly making them unable to have children. Dum, dum, dum. It's very Huxley. Real world alert. Uh, <laughs> Craig presided over an additional top secret project located in a special facility called Paradise, which housed a new breed of genetically engineered humans, the Craigers. Uh, at Paradise, Jimmy met a woman named Oryx, whom Craig had hired to teach the Crakers and to help distribute the Bliss Plus pills worldwide. Um, Oryx yeah, and it sounds a lot like a Brave New World sort of Soma kind of situation there. I'm like cutting out some of the unnecessarily bleak and just dark parts of the synopsis because they're not totally yeah. necessary. It's just like it really is like very dark. Oryx and Craig developed a relationship, and when Craig started at Rejuvenescence, he hired Oryx to work there, too. Oryx seduced Jimmy, and Jimmy worried that Craig would feel jealous if he found out. One night, while Craig was away from the facility and Oryx was picking up takeout, news reports started coming in. This is where shit gets real. Um, about simultaneous plague outbreaks unfolding around the world. Oryx called Jimmy to explain that the Bliss Plus pills contained a del delayed-release contagion and that she had unwittingly participated in the outbreak. Craig's plague spread quickly and killed the majority of people on the planet. Hmm. In the first hours of the outbreak, Craig returned to paradise with Oryx in tow, and he killed her in front of Jimmy. Jimmy then shot Craig. For the first few weeks after the outbreak, Jimmy remained locked in the paradise facility alone, uh, try basically trying to figure out what the fuck just happened to him. <laughs> So um, Oryx is a female character? She's a female. Well, I'll just say it. Basically, Oryx is like, the, at the beginning, when they're like watching all of this like pornographic stuff on online, mm -hmm. they see her in like a, she's like in a porn video and she's like a child. And then really? later they meet her in real life. And like, I don't know, they are fond of her or whatever. And she's from like Southeast Asia. And like, it's, there's a whole thing. They go into her backstory. Wow. It's a really dark book. Like, super dark yes it is yes and then yeah so craig like meets her when he was in college and it says employed her for sex work these are the things i i edited out in real time to you know to avoid um disturbing your delicate sensibilities but it my came out delicate sensibility <laughs> oh my goodness but i mean yeah i look at a lot of dark stuff all the time i mean it is interesting that this is uh, an actress who's i mean 
honestly, you know, there's no such, such thing as like what I say, sex work, it's prostitution. And the fact she's a child. Wow. And, and from Asia too, it's like everything wrapped into, yeah, it's super irrelevant and super like basically what, what happens. She was probably trafficked in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if the book alludes to that, but. Totally. I mean, it really, really does from what I remember. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, and I just wanted to, so that's pretty much the plot of the book, if you will. There's some stuff that it leaves out. I mean, there's really, there's so much in this book just in, you know, you could be on, this is what I really liked about it is, you know, sort of when you get into the meat and potatoes, when she unloads a lot of her research material, just one, you know, page or, or two page spread will just have so much like good stuff, at least from my point of view, you know, sort of having that bio background and uh, that it's like, you know, you can really mine it. Um, and there's a lot of, and so this is what I want to get into next is that a lot of these things, when I read this book in the mid 2000s, I really just, I read it as fiction, sort of with like a raised eyebrow and the hair standing up on the back of my neck, but fiction right. nonetheless, you yeah. know, like, and it's not as though I had never, you know, I, I sort of had dipped my toe into the waters of like, you know, what, what some would call conspiratorial or, or just reading about things that the mainstream, you know, really didn't want to, to look at. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, uh, but at the time I was like, whoa, it, you know, it was when you, it's like when you see someone who clearly is like has a lot of issues or like they're like an amputee and there's like a part of you that's like wow I'm glad that's not happening to me and like I just feel like I had a sense of I'm glad that's not happening in the real world like ever yeah like like this is fiction right I was like I'm gonna go the book because uh we were with some friends and they said, you know, this is Boris is like one of his favorite books. And a friend of ours had it at her house. And I had some time on my hands to kill. And so I read like the first 30 pages. And yeah, the hair is standing up on the back of my neck because I'm like, what? <laughs> this is this is actually sort of happening now, you know, with the uh, the way that we're um using pigs and animals and things like this to do these genetic experiments and I just it was it was a lot even just the first 30 pages you know is is shocking and yeah you have these children they do remind me a lot of 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 Mad Max maybe like beyond the Thunderdome where he's uh encounters those children that have no idea about like anything that's happened before exactly um and he has to like teach them things but you know they think mel gibson's (laughs) some kind of god uh who's this you know um but i don't want to get too too into that's exactly theory but that's that's what that's what happens in this book in the first like 30 pages there are these kids that yeah so back to these kids so are they a result of like the survival of of humankind like they're the so not yeah yeah i do so not exactly um so essentially the the way i see it or from from my last reading of the book this guy craig is essentially 
uh, highly intelligent, definitely rates very high on the sociopathy, um, you know, scale and is just like, he has a God complex. And um, so essentially, because the people doing this research, they go so deep into like pathologizing, you know, life and humanity that they essentially, you know, fall back on their own ego and they're like, well, I could do better, you know? And so really I would say, although he drew upon the human genome to design this new race, I really would, would call them, um, he really departed and actually he employed all of these chimeric techniques to basically make them immune and impervious. Like for example, they don't, get sick they just die when they're like 30 like painlessly um you know they so you know you could say maybe he used the dna from like the naked mole rat right because they don't get cancer they don't get sick like nothing happens to them they just they don't their cells don't age or whatever and then one day they just die and then the the other thing is for example um he, he felt that you know the human sexuality was very problematic and confusing and an unnecessary source of like you know stress and whatever strife and so he basically made them like baboons where like the female would just like turn blue when she was ovulating you know what i mean or or whatever and so it was very it was like futuristic garden of eden people you know what i mean and and so all of the things that he saw as being wrong with people that were a source of, you know, strife, but were part of nature and part of life for us. And I think build character and all those things. It's just sort of like edited out, which is exactly well, yeah, I mean, that's the philosophy. When of you have people. someone, yes, that's exactly what happens when you re remove studies of humanity, you know, uh, and you have, you know, what some people in our circles call like scientism, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, this really is indicative of uh, removing the study of, of the humanities, I think. This is very interesting to me because you have these two sort of uh, diametrically opposed characters who one is, you know, I studied humanities, I do the advertising campaigns, and then you have the guy, Craig, who studied just science and and uh, how to quantify and it's very very Nazi-esque I feel and I you know I think we're still living with the legacy of that sort of um, lens of humanity mm -hmm. basically yeah I couldn't agree more and and again I think you know the humanities that's where you have the, some of these people, you know, on TV, like bioethicists, you know, who totally just sycophants, you know, just yesing anything that these huge, powerful companies want to do. And, and really where people who have an inkling of ethics would come from would be the humanities, because it's sort of like the, the hard drive of the human spirit. And, you know, the, the, what I would call like the positive expression of human emotionality, which is kind of like, wait a second, just because you can doesn't mean you should, you know, right. like we, we there's no reason to do this. Yeah. So he creates an entire race out of basically a lab. Uh, exactly. And, and it's part of his plan too. You realize it's a very, just like, again, seemingly what's happening now, it's a, a very multifaceted plan where there's sort of these engineered plagues. You come out with this thing that you essentially try to administer to as many people as you can because, you know, sound familiar. And then within that product, 
whatever it is, pill injection, whatever, um, there is something else that takes time to manifest. And now I, my feeling is that that's autoimmunity in, in, in the real world. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing in my sort of analogy in the real world. Um, and then, so then they're preparing this sort of new race. And now I would say in the real world, I mean, it could be, you know, the, the new race could be sort of the moneyed elite who would be turned into some sort of, you know, chimeric creature that had all of these upgrades. There's definitely a lot of other fiction that hints at that. You know, if you think of films like Elysium, you know, even just medical technology, right? You know, there's obviously medical technology far and away, you know, outpacing yeah, what's available like to the public, but it's reserved for, you know, these people, like, I don't know, whatever, David Rockefeller had like one of them, either David Rockefeller or Henry Kissinger had like five or six heart transplants. You know what I mean? It's like, come on, what is going on? So um, yeah, I just, I feel like there's this rift opening up between the people who will be subjected. Another feature of this book that I want to sort of um, really emphasize is that these compounds are the only place that you can have like a life, like us sort of whatever middle-class-ish kids from the suburbs would remember our childhood to be like. Like you can't live like that in the cities anymore in, in this world because the cities are just like yeah, they're chaos. crime and disease and like just, you know, trafficking and like, you know, and, and there's no, if something happens in the cities, nothing happens. No, there's no one to investigate it. Like the police don't have the resources. And you know what I mean? It's sort of like a joke. And that's Are they even have police or is it all privatized forces? That's the thing. I, I'm, I'm, I don't even, it's, it, the police yeah. are sort of like a non-entity. They're like a non-starter. It's like, like um, publicly funded police are not even really like mentioned. It's just sort of like, mm. you know, because these corpse of corpse agents basically do the bidding of these, huge corporations that run the world they really that's like out of their jurisdiction unless they're for example in one of these books they come to like investigate this girl who used to work at one of these compounds and she was afraid they would find you know the 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 shotgun her dad's shotgun that she buried in the backyard um but really they didn't give a fuck about that they were just the only reason they were there is investigating her because she had insider knowledge from one of these like you know, health compounds. So again, it's sort of like anything that's not a threat to a corporation, like whether it's a murder or whatever, you know, they're not even going to investigate. And so there's the deterioration of society in these cities. And there's, you know, sort of like rolling, you know, pl plagues and epidemics that's really just sort of turned the cities into like a hellscape, you know what I mean? Where anything can happen. And, um, and that's and, where the, of course, like the people who have less economic exactly end up. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And again, <laughs> I don't know how much I have to, you know, specify, but it sounds really familiar, you know, get everyone in the world to take a certain, you know, biotech product. It's kind of sounds like a, a jab situation, you know, without knowing any of the side effects. And yeah, well, this is something I did want to touch on, because um, if you do a little bit of digging, you'll find that pretty much all of the drugs, or the high hopes, I should say, of these pharma companies um, are riding on autoimmune 
drugs and new new therapies for autoimmune disease. And I mean, they're sinking like hundreds of millions of dollars in R&D money into specifically autoimmunity, which is really interesting because right now it's not that big of a problem. It's a very sort of niche thing. I mean, if you have autoimmune disease, other than like, I don't know, psoriasis, you know, that's kind of a, anyway, like, you know, lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, like that's pretty serious. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're sick. So, um, and so, but that's, that doesn't happen to that many people. Definitely the rates are escalating, but you have to wonder how much of this confidence, right, is based on the fact that they've done the studies, who knows, you know, how many internal studies, this stuff is getting leaked all the time, they just released a leak of like hundreds of pages of studies that Pfizer did that they knew about mm-hmm. something, and they didn't tell and you know, now it's like a big scandal. And I mean, this is, you know, Pfizer is like the poster child for this stuff. And so you have to wonder, and they have no liability, none, you have to wonder whether it's just a matter of, well, we know that this quote unquote, you know, quaxine is going to um, do this to people, is going to sensitize the immune system, you know, that, whether it's the heavy metals or whatever else, you know, I could, I, if, if I do- dove into that, then we would be on here for much more than, but we covered, I would say but we so covered he a has, lot of that. Yeah, yeah, he has like this whole plan. Right, exactly. And so um, the other part of the plan is that these pills that they um, gave people, you know, to whatever, improve their libido, improve their pleasure during sex and all these things contained this delayed release contagion, then all of these people eventually started showing symptoms and it, it very much swept the planet the way that, you know, any plague would. Um, and so I wanted to sort of pivot a little bit and because at the very, there's a couple things I noticed at the very beginning of the book that I thought were really interesting. And I just want to, first of all, I want to read you the very first thing that it says in this book, okay, Oryx and Crake, a novel, Margaret Atwood, right? And then, you know, every book has its like dedication, right? So look what it says, for my family. And then a quote, I could perhaps like others have astonished you with strange, improbable tales, but I rather chose to relate plain matter of fact in the simplest manner and design, because my principal design was to inform you, not to amuse you. Jonathan Swift, Gulliver's Travel. So she's telling her family, this is not fiction. Hmm right? I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, it's very uh, prescient at best. Exactly. (laughs) And then, so the other thing is the book opens with, he says, the first thing I can remember is a big bonfire when he was a kid. This is his first memory. And what they were burning was sheep, um, cows, pigs, sheep, and livestock. Okay. And Jimmy, the kid says, Oh, can I take one of the horns? It's just going to get burnt anyway. And his father says, No, not this time. And they're talking about how basically this is like a move by one of these biotech companies. And I'll actually pull up the quote. Um, His father says,
they say it was brought in on purpose, I wouldn't be surprised. Drive up the prices, said the man. Make a killing on their own stuff that way. So you have these sort of warring factions, if you will, within these corporations. And so what they're doing was sort of the collateral damage, right, is that they're destroying nature, literally in the process, because they're creating these epidemics, pandemics, chimeras, contagions, and nature is just not built to withstand that level of, of tinkering and, and, you know, psychopathy. And so these natural organisms are dying off. And what I really wanted to bring in is the fact that right now, um, I just sort of skimmed the, the, the web and there in this year, in 2022, specifically in March of this year, they always like to start this stuff in the, in March. Um, I just found it. And basically all of the animals, because again, with the whole vegan agenda and all of that, they really want to eliminate animal husbandry and, and livestock. Because again, if you, if you have animals, you are already vastly more independent than someone who's who's totally dependent right on this industrial food system mm -hmm. because you know let's say there's a shortage oh there's a beef shortage oh there's a you know there's a vegetable shortage oh there's a wheat shortage there's a grain shortage all these staple foods if you have like five cows you're chilling you're good you know what i mean you're you're not and so that's very much a threat just straight a, a and aren't they burning threat. livestock in certain places at this right. moment yeah and so yeah i found for example this is from march 3rd 2022 um and it says viral disease outbreak reported in cattle farms in karachi and other parts of province so this is in india and again they they like to start these things in the developing world because you know that's yeah, very believable test, they're perfect exactly. test grounds too because people aren't going to be as protected as let's say here where there are more regulations and things like that well and place. it doesn't have that same culture as the u.s does where everyone is so trigger happy with lawsuits and informed enough to to you know to file a lawsuit whereas you know if you live in a village in india chances are you don't have the money to or the knowledge to, to file a lawsuit and so no, yeah i will say they have been fighting back quite a bit in india in particular which is very interesting so this is interesting. Two hours ago, this article, believe it or not, May 12th, uh, it says that avian flu has jumped to foxes. This is from two hours ago. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, three foxes in Michigan uh, confirmed to have avian flu. This is the state's first confirmation of the HPA1 virus in wild mammals. Um, so, so really they're playing up this narrative, right? Bird flu. We already knew, you know, swine flu that made an appearance in the seventies. Then it made an appearance again in the 2000, you know, the two thousands. So it's really, you know, keeping people in fear. And again, it's unclear to what extent these diseases are man-made or if they are just a result of industrial farming and you know what I mean? It, or, or a mm -hmm. combination of the two. So again, it's, it's a very good place to sort of spin up a fear narrative because it's very difficult to research these types of things. Um, so yeah, really, I just wanted to sort of emphasize these sort of like echoes or, you know, rhymes, if you will, where like the, the fiction, if you want to call it that, is exact, it's, it's awfully prescient to be able to essentially 
call out and predict like these very, very specific um, coincidences that I don't believe are coincidences uh, in, in real life. And uh, so, yeah. And I mean, and she's writing, you know, with that swift quote, um at the beginning there you know this mm -hmm. it's implying that you know though this account is fictional i'm trying to sort of seed truth with it exactly and so the other thing i wanted to mention and to be honest i don't remember exactly to what extent this book mentions rna technology but i know that it's discussed and so in 2021, if I'm not mistaken, they approved the first um, RNA drug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it says FDA approves Le 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 I can't even pronounce that. Some of these drug names are hilarious. Lecvio. Okay. Um, so it's for to reduce LDL cholesterol. It's a first in class uh, siRNA. Now, siRNA stands for small interfering RNA. And so this is essentially, again, to play God, they use these newly discovered mechanisms that essentially allow them to turn on or to silence, in this case, uh, gene expression. Mm. And so, you know, if you want to cause disease or create a susceptibility to disease, you know, and you can go in and silence. It's also in the GMO food. That's the other thing people don't realize is that just eating non-native, you know, food, food that comes from organisms that are not native to this planet, they were designed by these same people. That already leaves us open to genetic engineering and, and modification of our DNA because that word transgenic, you know, if you, if you get into some of these terms, like transfection is like you come into contact with DNA, you're not necessarily injected with it. You don't necessarily take a pill. You could just be eating food, mm. but the interaction in the gut or in the body is such that those genes are then absorbed into our system and then end up being incorporated into our DNA, which causes all sorts of things intended and unintended by the, you know, the people running this, this uh, clown show. And so <laughs> it's, you know, it's really, yeah, it is depressing. It's really a scary situation. Um, but it makes sense, you know, that that RNA is sort of the new talk of the town because um, it's the intermediary between everything. You know, DNA gets all of this sort of like big, you know, pop and circumstance. Right. Yeah, like it's like this big deal, DNA, you know, the code of life. But really what they found, and, and they taught us this in biology as well, is that prior to DNA, it was an RNA world because all DNA is translated into RNA. DNA is almost like the, you know, like in the middle ages when everybody started building castles because like the world got really like dangerous and kind of hardcore. And like, you had to like build a castle and have like thick stone walls. Cause you never knew what someone was going to kind of throw at you or try to lay siege. That's kind of like what the nucleus is in DNA. That's when life, like, you know, a lot of different um, forms of life existed and life had to protect itself. So it went into the nucleus, into the DNA. That's like the fortress of the cell. It's like protected. It has its own membrane, but RNA is like, you know, the townsfolk, like they've always been there and they're the ones that actually make life work. So that's kind of like what RNA is like. And so it makes a lot of sense that they would 
look to RNA to influence everything because they've now found that RNA can be transcribed back into DNA and then incorporated into the cell, which is very scary. And that's what the the so-called vaccine is, isn't it? That's exactly right. It's uh, to the extent that one would like to believe the disclosure by these companies that um, at least several of them use the the nanolipid coated or a pegylated nanolipid um, coated RNA because RNA is very fragile, right? Mm. It degrades very easily. And so they couldn't just inject people with this stuff because it would never, you know, the body knows what it's doing and it's used to fighting off all sorts of, you know, invaders and pathogens, both genetic and proteinaceous and otherwise. But when you, you know, nanolipids don't, to my knowledge, exist in nature anywhere. So when you can create something like this, that sort of bypasses the defenses Mm. and the the adaption you know adaptive mechanisms of the body and of biology in general that's when they're really able to start messing with us on this very fundamental level um but it does seem to be sort of a multi-pronged assault because you know you have the food then you have all of this stuff in the vaccines and we really don't know what other things you know you could talk about plastics and how you know all of these, when we wear things made of polyester or we use certain detergents or there's like plastic leaching into our food or whatever, all of these things are actually um, hormone modulators and a lot of them are highly estrogenic. <laughs> Basically this book, um, to me, I think Margaret Atwood is, is pretty good at this where she's able to kind of see the current situation and then maybe expound on it but what she is really good at and this happens in the handmaid's tale too just sort of observing trends and maybe doing some research into this i i heard something where she says she asks herself a question that's kind of how her writing process works right like what if xyz happened um and that's that's and how she, I heard she wrote The Handmaid's Tale. You and know? then she runs with it, essentially. Yeah, yes. And then she does all of the research. But what's so scary about this book is, like I said, when I was reading it a couple of weeks ago, whenever it really stood out to me as, oh, this is happening now. Like we, you know, are forming these sorts of nightmare cities and we're, um, I mean, I have whole theories on, on what's going on within um, our justice system. Uh, but I, again, so there's just so many facets to cover. And this book is such a great, um, I think, starting point for people to sort of read something that uh, is outlining what we're dealing with, you know, and uh, but I think it's a, a very interesting book and I'm, I'm very happy that I, you know, heard it recommended by you and that I got to read at least 30 pages of it <laughs> and, you know, maybe I'd pick it up again. Um, but do you have any, any final thoughts on like the parallels between this book and what's happening now? Well, I think, um, to reference a podcast I just listened to, I think the, the end game is very similar to the end game in this book. And it is very much the wholesale destruction of nature itself and the ecosphere 
spoiler alert, this is not an optimistic, like <laughs> right. love and light ending. Um, we're in, I don't know if, you know, they, they've engineered a new race of humans. The jury's still out on that, but definitely even just with crops, you know, if you look at like Monsanto and all the stuff with Roundup ready crops, the, these crops and the pesticides, they engineer them to, to be resistant to outcompete and destroy nature and then all that's left and the only thing that can you know survive in this sort of like barren you know gene in whatever infested world is their own chimeric and bioengineered versions and so that's sort of where mm -hmm. i see all of this going and it's sort of they've been doing it with the crops and now it's moving into these animals and and it's always under the guise of safety right it's always under the guise of improving the world or improving crop yield or oh something and so the narrative is very much nature is dirty, nature is scary, and just sort of let us take care of everything and, and put the trust in us. And really, they, they're, you know, they're playing God. And so that's kind of the direction that I see this going in. And of course, the, the final frontier, if you will, is us, is our bodies themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and many yeah, people- Yeah, we get into the transhumanist sort of situation mm -hmm. right and so i the think the human that's body really... is imperfect we're going to do all these things to improve we're going to start by saying these things are going to help disabled people right we're exactly. going to make the blind see we're going to make the deaf hear that kind of stuff and then once um, they get their foot in the door it's... and then it just gets to gattaca or something right <laughs> <laughs> where you have yeah it's very huxley you know i find it really interesting that parallel where in the book that we're talking about, uh, the pill is is supposed to enhance, what did you say, sexual pleasure? Yes, exactly. Right. And so that's actually very Huxley, you know, that's very Brave New World, this sort of idea that like, it's not going to be a torture thing. It's going to be everything is here for you. Everything, you know, the pleasure, everything's going to be fulfilled, right? Uh, in forms of drugs, et cetera. I, I find that parallel to be very interesting. Um, and of course, Margaret would be aware of, of Brave New World and, and probably has incorporated some of those thematic elements into her own work. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, do we think, <laughs> but to, to be a little weird, do we think Margaret Atwood knows something that we don't know <laughs> you know i was trying to figure that out i think margaret atwood um sort of not necessarily made a deal with the sith but sort of like looked in on their <laughs> internal memos you know and then found enough things that she was like i'm gonna warn my family and maybe you know buy a nice piece of land far away and get like a couple of chickens and and just kind of hunker down you know that that would be my thinking because mm. um I, I don't know who knows you know she could be in the club certainly that was weird that seeing you know what i mean i just typed in margaret atwood world economic forum you know what i mean like a slot machine and so when i got that payout i was like oh my gosh are you serious you know like, and i just want to mention again this book was uh, published in the early 2000s, probably conceived before then. And a lot of us weren't thinking about these things in the late 90s. Oh, certainly not. Well, I was in like fourth grade, so definitely not in my case. Well, me neither, but I don't even know if if people older than me were, were really thinking about these things in the late 90s. So 
But this seems also that era, the late 90s, early 2000s, seems to be a very much a hotbed for these kinds of things to sort of take off these technologies. Remember the sheep that they cloned, Dolly. Right. So that it was already sort of starting to be in conversation. So maybe someone doing a bit more research than I was at the time, you know, like Margaret Atwood would have had to do with this book. Maybe she learned some things that she she wanted to warn us about. So I'll I'll be a little optimistic and take it as a warning. <laughs> um and and not try to be too cynical and and think, you know, Margaret, you know, you're in the club, what's going on? Are you but... there, God? It's me, Margaret. <laughs> I know what you're doing. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> He does where it's the sort of the humanities person versus the STEM person. I think that's very interesting. Like, I think it's a very relevant thread to pull from what we're dealing with right now. Um, because I, I feel as a humanities person that they want to erase us. They, they, they don't want people like like me who who read a lot of fiction or or write poetry or anything like that they don't they don't want people like that around and if those people are around they want whatever they're writing to prop up the narratives that are um uh positive for them so you're not going to get anyone who has any kind of controversy around them it's it's fascinating time honestly think about and maybe even hopefully read this book I mean I think Margaret's a great writer and it's definitely a book worth checking out um yeah I would just say you know read it there's the, the, that summary really doesn't do it justice and whatever I pulled out of it is mainly to you know sort of like connect the dots and point to stuff in real life but it doesn't do it justice and it is very um there's a lot of like, you know, sort of humanitarian human elements to it as well. Um, so I would recommend checking it out, whether it's in fiction or, you know, whatever, really get into this stuff, you know, and arm yourself with as much knowledge as you can. And I think fiction is a good way to sort of dip your toe into this stuff, because, you know, if you don't have a background in, in bio or lab science, you're not just going to go online and start reading scholarly papers and medical literature. That's, that's a little <laughs> too dense, you know? So it's, I mean, in that sense, she's done a service because it's an easy way to sort of get your foot in the door and actually become familiar with these things. It's a lot more, you know, it's a lot less time consuming to get familiar with something in a fictional world that lays it all out for you than to try to, you know, sift through hundreds of thousands of articles on the interwebs.